0: Good morning. Happy New Year. Great to see. Great to see all of you. Um, if if you don't like the questions we we give you, remember you don't have to use them. Number one. Number two. It, uh, they're usually way better than the first ones that we think we're going to do. Like we were thinking about turn to your person next to you and and ask them uh, what what's your credit card balance after Christmas. <laughs> you know. Uh, we almost went with that one, but. Uh, all right, so a couple of months ago, I read a book called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear. And it's really a great book. It's a book about building good habits into your life. It, uh, it has impacted the way that I think. Uh, it's impacted my life. It's impacted the way that I even think about leadership and even about preaching. And here's a quote from, um, I don't know if this is in the book, but it's definitely, it's, it's, I got it from a, an email that he sends out to people who've signed up for his email newsletter. And I think it captures really well the the gist of the book. He says, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Your goal is your desired outcome. Your system is the collection of habits that will get you there. This year, spend less time focusing on outcomes and more time focusing on the habits that will precede the rituals. You do not rise to the level of your goals you fall to the level of your systems. So why am I talking about this? This is not the sermon. (laughs) This is the pre-sermon. Well, on your way in today, you uh, got one of these cards. And this is something that we hand out every year around this time. It's a tool for you to use. And I really want, I need everybody's attention here, really quick. Everybody's attention. Any given time, 30% of you aren't listening to me. (laughs) I just assume that. So if you say, why does he repeat himself sometimes? That's why. All right. We don't want this. Do not give this to us. Do not turn this in. Keep this. All right? This is a tool for you. Uh, So in the first uh, step, it's a first step in building a system for growing in generosity. Just the first step. And uh, it's for you if growing in generosity is actually something that you want to do. So I'm not talking in terms of growing in generosity I'm not talking about it just in terms of giving to our church but giving wherever you give financially Um, I know uh, most of you as myself give to other ministries and missionaries and um, so if you're if growing in generosity is a goal of yours you can start with this card and it's the beginning of building a system so uh, remember you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. It's the first step. So this is the first step by looking at what is my goal. What is my goal for my giving this year? And if you're wanting to grow in it, my suggestion to you is, the scripture gives a, a general principle for us now, but it's kind of a benchmark. What does generosity look like? And scripture, it constantly uses a tithe, which is 10%. But your, your heart may not be there, your faith may not be there, but you're wanting to grow. And it certainly 10% isn't like the maximum or uh, the minimum or it's, it's a benchmark for us. So if you want to grow, one of my suggestions oftentimes to people, take it or leave it, is to look back at your giving from the last year. If you're wanting to grow, add 1%. And learn to trust God with that extra that you're trusting God with, um, in that in this year. So after you determine your goal, then you need a system. And um, <clears throat> systems are only work if they're simple. It's one of the principles of Atomic Habits. Got to make it simple, easy, easy to do. Uh, I'm not great at flossing my teeth. I I know there's a bunch of you that are the same because every time I talk to people about this, they say, "Oh, I yeah, mean, me neither, me neither." You feel guilty every time you go into the dentist. And uh, so for the last 40 days, I just put the flossing right there on my sink, right there where I have to see it. I don't even have to reach into a drawer. It doesn't get mixed in with a lot of other things. And for 40 days straight, I floss my teeth because I made it easy, made it simple. So that's the next step. So how do you make what your giving goal easy or simple to do? You put this in your bill box. You put You know, some notes in there of what you want to do, how often, that sort of thing. Or you do what you do with your other bills that are important to you to pay. And that is you just make it automatic. And so if you're interested in automatic giving to Five Oaks, you can do that. And if you don't know how to do that, uh, just write electronic giving or automatic giving on your communication card. And we will send you the information. All right, we're going to pray. Then we're going to jump into our series and our passage for today. This prayer is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We pray at this point in our service every week because we're in the second movement of our service. It's a movement where we are listening, listening to God through His Word. He speaks through His Word. It's His Word, but we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it into our hearts and into our minds and empower it into our lives. So we ask for that at this point. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing and the gifts that you have given. Thank you for blessing us with your word. Thank you that when we receive salvation, we also receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds as we look to your word. Remind us that change can come through faith in Jesus Christ, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made new. Lead us and empower us to reflect your glory to the world around us as you make us more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're kicking off a brand new series uh, today. and It's a series uh, that covers three chapters from the Gospel of Matthew. And these three chapters for I don't know how long have been called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be here for three months. We're going to work our way systematically through this for three months. We're calling the series Good, and beautiful life. So as I started putting together today's sermon and introducing the series, I realized I had a couple of challenges, big challenges. And the first big challenge that I had is how to capture the imagination of anyone who is here today who thinks about life and what they want out of life and they would never use the words good or beautiful to describe what they want out of life. And I, you know, on some days, I don't think that those would be the words that I would use of what I particularly am looking for in life. And so, I had to uh, think about that, and, and I just want to suggest, if good and beautiful life is something that you go, that just sounds, mm, not me. Call it your best life now, in your mind. Every time I say good and beautiful life, think of your best life now. And that would capture kind of the idea behind this series. But I still have a problem because Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount um, with a description of your best life now that doesn't, to a lot of people, sound all that great. No self-respecting, self-help book, no motivational guru would start a sermon, a talk, a book using the words and the ideas that Jesus uses as he starts his sermon. In fact, some people have walked away from faith based on the words that we're going to look at today. It's the story of the guy who wrote this book right here. <laughs> his name's Michael Wilkins. He's, uh, he's not just an author, he's a commentator. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, Ph.D., seminary professor, dean of a seminary, or at least was at, at the time um, of writing this book. And uh, this is a commentary on Matthew, all right, and in this commentary, normally, normally in commentaries like this, they're very technical and they go over, you know, words and history and comparable texts from the same time and how would it be heard by the original audience, that's what a commentary is trying to get at. But, they don't usually get into the personal life of the commentator, but this commentary series specifically wants the commentators to talk application. How does this actually apply to our lives? Not just what it means mean then, but how do you bring it into today? And he gets kind of personal in here, and he tells a story about how he walked away from faith based on the passage that he just had spent time analyzing. And uh, it's, it's called the Beatitudes. It's the, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, he, he remembers vividly, he says, I remember vividly, he says, being in a Sunday school class where the Sunday school teacher was teaching on the Beatitudes. And I was listening to it, and it, I just thought it was pathetic. I, I just, they're ridiculous to want to live that way. He said, I was a jock, I was a three-sport athlete, I was with two of my friends who were also athletes. We were just laughing back there in the back of the class. And I remember vividly deciding at that point that that is not the life I want and kind of chucking Christianity after he heard the Beatitudes. Now he writes a commentary on the whole Gospel of Matthew. So I had my work cut out for me because really, if we don't get it, if I don't get it, if you you don't get it, some of you don't get it, the reality is for those of us who don't get it, we're going to miss, we really are going to miss out on the best life now. We're going to miss out on a good and beautiful life And according to Jesus, we can expect disappointment, regret, and even ruin. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And if you don't know where Matthew is, that's fine. It's page 968 in those Bibles. And uh, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version, Now if you're new with us today, uh, hopefully you picked up one of these on your way in. Uh, Several things uh, that are in here, one is there is a um, sermon application guide, and so this can be helpful for taking notes, some of the quotes, various things like that are in here. Uh, There's reflection questions in here as well, Uh, so uh, I highly recommend taking a look at that. If taking notes is helpful for you, you can use this. the other thing is normally when I'm done, when we're done with the listening movement and we're moving into our response time, I usually explain how communion works at Five Oaks. I'm not going to do that today. There's a small explanation in here, but just, just know that, that you are invited, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're invited to communion today during that time. But it explains kind of how we do it. Uh, I think we used to explain it. No, we don't anymore. Okay, I'll have to explain it. Okay. Things get updated, which is good. Poor people last night, I told them, go look in there. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where we get the teaching of Jesus. Everything, you've had him say some things and... uh, I think he's quoted. Yeah, he's quoted a few times. But this is the first time where we get an extended teaching of Jesus. And Matthew specializes in the extended teaching of Jesus. He has five of these. They are all descriptions of what discipleship is. Each one looking at different aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. So verse three. Here's how he starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For some of you, reading that, you may not have Wilkins' uh, experience of looking at it and saying it's lame and pathetic. Some of you, you're your response to that may be a sense of feeling overwhelmed because what you're reading there, for some of you, it is an attractive thing. It's something that you want for yourself. It's something maybe you've wanted for yourself for a long time because you've read this passage before. And you know how how far you fall short of it. So it feels unattainable. You may even feel ashamed because you call yourself a Christian, but this does not reflect well who you are. You may feel deep disappointment in yourself because time and discouragement, because time and time again, you've tried to live this and you've not been able to live it. For still others, I just read to you your goals for 2020. You read it and you go, yes, that's what I want to be. I want to work on that and I'm going to work on all of those this year. I love a good challenge. That's how, you know, different people are wired in different ways. But whether you feel this is lame or you're discouraged by it or you're excited for the challenge of becoming this kind of person, I'm sorry to say, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of this passage. And I hope you'll understand that by the time we're done. So we're going to look at five basics. Five basics for living a truly good and beautiful life. And... These five basics apply to... This is an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It sets everything up for what's coming later. So what I'm about to say really applies to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, to everything we're going to be talking about in this series. So here's the first basic. The first basic is this. This described here is a happy life. This is a happy life. Um, Some translations use the word happy instead of the word blessed. You could do a little search and you'll find maybe three or four translations because the word blessed there is the same word that Matthew wrote in Greek and the word that he used also can be translated according to its context can also be translated as happiness. And so there's a lot of debate, you know, probably a couple of pages worth in that book, about what is the best translation for this. Is it really happiness? Certainly, it's not happiness if happiness means, like it does in our everyday language, kind of uh, just an emotion that is fleeting that I might experience for a few moments or for a few days or because I'm just like a happy person, okay? Uh, if it, it, it never means that. Um, but happiness, a true sense of happiness, a lasting sense of happiness, it could possibly mean that, but I don't think it does. I, I think it's a mistake to translate it happy, and I've been convinced by several scholars who say this, because the best word is actually, blessed is not that good of a word either, because we don't, we don't use it. I mean, where, where do you use the word blessed in everyday language? You in high school, or no school, do you use, use the word blessed? You know, at uh, 3M, do you use the word blessed? And so we kind of, kind of get... You know, it kind of loses, it's, it's lost a lot of its meaning. The word that actually is the best word, it's, it's not that good to use because it, the reality is that it leaves you kind of like, it's, ew, you know, it doesn't sound quite right in, in our culture. And it's the word favored. And specifically favored by God. That's the idea that's here. These people are favored by God and are going to be therefore blessed in these ways. Now, I still say it's a happy life that's being described there because Jesus says it's a happy life. Uh, You might have noticed it. It's kind of in a weird place. But in verse 11, he expands on the beatitude that's given in verse 10. All right, So it's the same beatitude, but he's expanding on it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And it's in that context that he says... Rejoice and be glad. The word happiness actually captures really well what he's describing there. Rejoicing and be glad. That's happiness. You can call it joy if you want to. Some people like to differentiate between those two terms, but it's true happiness, true happiness. It's deeper than what we usually mean by happiness in everyday conversations. And it's deeper because it looks beyond the obvious. The kind of happiness, the kind of rejoicing and being glad that he's talking about here. Why can you rejoice and be glad? Because it looks beyond the obvious. I'm being insulted. I'm being persecuted. My life is bad right now. Why why would I be happy? Because there's other realities besides the persecution. What's the reality that he puts in there? Because, be happy because great is your reward in heaven. Of course, heaven has to matter to you. Eternity has to matter to you. God's kingdom, his rule, has to matter to you, of course. But you're looking beyond the obvious um, the, the obvious circumstances to the larger circumstances of who you are in God. There's an author by the name of Randy Alcorn. Some of you have probably read some of his books. He's read it, but, written about 60 books. And he's, he's a man, if you know his story, he's very well acquainted with grief and loss but he wrote a book and he's he's theologically really a solid guy okay Um, right, I'm not gonna make that comment Um, anyway solid guy but he has recently come out with a book says does God want us to be happy and then it's the case you probably can't say it the case for biblical happiness and he makes the case he makes the case for biblical happiness Now this is a shortened version of a book that he wrote about four years ago called Happiness. 808 pages. Going out throughout history, all what the Bible says, spends a whole section, a big section in the book, proving that God is a happy God. Not happiness, again, in the way that we use happiness on an everyday language, but happiness, truly happy. Does God want you to be happy? A resounding yes, true and lasting happy true and lasting happiness call it joy but god wants you to be happy and this life described in these verses in the sermon on the mount they do describe a true deep and lasting happiness they really do Um, they describe the only way to true happiness here's the second reality by the way these five basics i'm going to go over you got to have all of them if you're missing one of these the whole thing falls down. It actually does. You, you will not really get the message of the Sermon on the Mount or the, sermon or the Beatitudes. Here's the second one. This is a suffering life. It's a weird one to follow the last one, but Jesus kind of leads it. It's obvious in the last Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Um, so when I say a suffering life, I like to talk my sermons through with someone on staff I did yesterday. And he said, okay, you know, gave me feedback. And um, one of the things is, okay, you make me think that that that's kind of like I've got to go out and find it if I'm not experiencing it. Like if I'm not suffering, something is wrong with me. And that's not what it's saying here. The reality is that if you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, there is going to be sacrifice in your life. Sacrifice of the things that you sometimes want that are contrary to what God wants and that God knows is best. So there's going to be sacrifices. Christianity without suffering, I guarantee you, it's not, it's not Christianity. It's something completely different. It's the best life now that you have created, and it's not really that good, according to the Bible. So, um, so that's the kind of suffering, or it can be all the way to people insulting you because you follow Jesus. Jesus. Um, so I read a book, I uh, read this week, about a Christian author and a professor. Her name is Virginia Stem Owens. And uh, she teaches in universities. She teaches literature. In, in one of the major universities she was teaching, and she gave an assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount to her students and to write an essay about it. And so she gives the assignment, she gets back the essays, and what does she discover? They hated it. Like, everybody in the class hated it. She said, none of the students had ever read it before, and most of the students, or at least a fair number of them, had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So one student said this, I didn't like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Well, guess what? Sermon on the Mount, there's, Jesus says at one point, be perfect, because God is perfect. Wasn't making it up. Another student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. absurd. To look at a woman with lust is adultery. To get angry or insult someone is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I have ever heard. That student read it correctly. He does say that. We'll get to that. So, you know what um, Owens concluded? She concluded that finally, biblical illiteracy has come to the point in America where people can actually read what Jesus is saying without editing it or explaining it away. They can actually hear what he's saying. The good and beautiful life Jesus offers is a suffering life, but it's the best best and happy life why because it's there because great is your reward in heaven and heaven in the way that Jesus speaks of heaven I could spend a long time talking about this but I can't right now I'm sure we'll come back to it in the series heaven is an eternal an eternal life of meaningful purpose adventure happiness intimacy and delight and if that's not how you understand heaven in the bible i'm I'm telling you you have misread the bible that is the heaven that jesus speaks of that's the jesus that's the heaven that jesus is talking about when he says your reward for eternity in this great adventure is going to be great yeah you can be glad that you're persecuted because of me it's a good thing Ultimately, it's a good thing. Number three, this is the third absolute basic. It is a distinct life. We are called to be different, and we'll talk about that a lot next week. In fact, we'll go into much greater detail, because right after the Beatitudes, the next thing that he talks about is the fact that we, who are his disciples, who are followers of Jesus, need to be an influence in our world. He uses two great images of being salt in the world and light to the world. And so we're going to go into that in detail. But understand this. this It's just all I want to say at this point. You can't be salt and light in the world, for the world, because we're to be in the world for the world, if you simply adopt and assimilate kind of the value system of your world rather than God's value system, the value system that Jesus is going to be giving us. Especially, not all the values in the world around us are bad. A lot of them are really good. But when we adopt values like, this world is all there is, so go for it now, we can't be salt and light. When we adopt a value that says, you are the captain of your ship, and you are in charge of your own life, and you can determine what right and wrong is, and what your meaning in life is, it's not what Jesus taught. You can't be salt and light, you're just, you're just assimilated in. <laughs> you can't be salt and light for Jesus. You can't be a light on a hill. You're just like everybody else when you adopt those values. The blessed haven't bought into the dominant culture's ideas of what really matters. That's not not just this culture that we live in. That's every culture of every nation in all of history. The blessed don't buy in. So, the blessed, favored ones are poor in spirit. What culture says the best, the best that you can be is to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt? You know, nobody, nobody says that. Um, what cultures don't emphasize pride whereas Jesus emphasizes humility? That's what a poor in spirit. They're broken. There's Someone who recognizes their brokenness. The blessed favor ones are, uh, uh, of God are meek. I mean, who wants to be meek? I, I can give you all kinds of ways that meek, you know, I can explain it. And those are important and in their time I could explain how meek can be a strength. But still you got to be meek. And nobody strives for being meek see a meek person is not kicking and scratching and driving to do you know just pushing through to make things happen even if oh yeah too bad there's a little bit of carnage along the way nobody teaches that if we had time we could take each one of these and and see um how it is that they are counter cultural Uh, but I think, you get the, I think you get the idea. These are not things that most people pursue or believe are important. Most of us are caught up in things like celebrity, money, status, those kinds of things. Um, but you have none of that here as what it means to be favored and blessed. It's so countercultural that we naturally recoil when we really hear what Jesus is talking about. If you really hear it, there's a kind of like when he says meek, when he says poor in spirit, when he says persecuted, it would be natural to recoil. Number four, this is the fourth basic. Uh, This one's kind of weird. I'll give you time to write it. Um, But I wanted to capture a lot. This is a journey with Jesus to becoming life. This isn't something that you arrive at, it's really a journey. And you do it with Jesus. And I could add even more. You don't do it just with Jesus. You do it with Jesus' people as well. Um, Look back at the opening verses of chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So this is setting things up. This is saying, look, there are crowds and there are disciples. The crowds are interested. They're, they're curious, and so they come. And they're through the gospels. You read that. You just do a search on a, uh, like on a website like BibleGateway.com, for example, and do the. You'll see crowds, 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 crowds. And what you'll see is sometimes the crowds are like, "Yay!" Like when Jesus enters Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, what we now call Palm Sunday. Um, those same crowds are the ones that say. Crucify him, crucify him. So the crowds are fickle. They're they're investigating. You know, they can go from really fickle to people who are getting closer to Jesus. And then they're disciples. So that's one of the things. Jesus sits down, what and you and you get it because he's called this throughout the gospel, rabbi, teacher. That's why he sits down. That's how a rabbi would sit, sit, and the disciples would would come around him and he and the rabbi would teach his disciples. So he's teaching them. This is What he's saying, this is for you disciples. Are the crowds listening in? Yes. But he's speaking to those who have drawn close to him. Now the disciples that are mentioned here are not the 12 disciples. Because at this point in the story, there aren't 12. And later you read the Gospels and you find that disciples is used for more than the 12. It included a whole group of women that followed him and a whole bunch of people that you go like, Well, I never heard it. Lazarus isn't one of the 12, but he's called a disciple and Mary and Martha and all these other people. So the disciples are those people who have chosen to walk with Jesus. They're following him. There's a few words that capture what discipleship is. I'll put them up here. I wish I'd just put them in your outline. This is a life of discipleship. You can put that in there if you're taking notes. If you can write while I'm talking, hopefully, or just I can give it to you later if you want it. But here's here's what we're talking about here. We're talking about apprenticeship. We're talking... uh, that's a some people use the word apprenticeship instead of discipleship to try to get across the idea. This is, more, this is less like being a student in a classroom and more like being an apprentice in a shop. That's Jesus' teaching way. And that's how he continues to teach. It's more like being an apprentice than being a student in a classroom. Um, the other words that, uh, I don't know where I am in my notes, so I'll just look up here. Uh, it's highly, 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 highly relational. And so the teacher and student have a close relationship. I can't overemphasize that today, in your Christian life, God wants to have, Jesus wants to have an intimate, close relationship with you. A daily walking together. And it's not just, again, relational with Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord but it's relational with each other, with the other disciples. So it's highly, highly relational. It's highly experiential. So instead of just uh, come back, we're going to give you a test on this information, Jesus gives them information, and throughout the Gospels, he sends them out to practice. Let's see how it works, and then let's debrief how it went. And that's what he does. So it's experiential. It's story-formed. Because Jesus is constantly telling stories, because we live by stories. I'm well, always trying to figure out a new way to try to explain what that is. I know I must lose some people on that one, but it's just, we think in stories, if in your life, you, um, for you, what's really important is to be uh, a, a, a YouTube influencer or something like that, you know, somebody that, you know, makes a million dollars because people watch your YouTube video. All right, let's say that's your thing. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. That's part of a story. You understand? That's a story in your mind, a narrative in your mind that says, that's the good life. And then after I get that, we don't usually think beyond that. But And then after I get that, this is what my life can be, and I can experience this. And you have a story in your head of what it is. Jesus gives a different story. He gives a better story. He gives the best story for our lives. That's what the parables are all about. They're about breaking through the way we look at life, giving us better stories. And then finally, they are practiced. Uh, And so Jesus is constantly giving them practices to do. He teaches them how to pray. He teaches them what not to do when they fast. He teaches them what not to do when they give. Uh, He teaches them by his own example to just pull away at times and be quiet and be alone with God. But he also teaches them as he takes them every week on Saturday into the synagogue service. And he says, and we need to gather with others as part of our faith. And so he's teaching them through example and he's giving them practices. That's what a life of discipleship is about. Last one, number five. It is a received life. It is a received life. This is one where we can go wrong really, really easily and very, very quickly. So let me try, let me try to explain it with a story, and, and then we'll unpack it a little bit, and then we're done. So, um, Michael Wilkins, the author in here, he shares the rest of his story. And I've uh, slightly edited it. I, I read it last night, and... I don't know if it connected. I'm trying something different. I put it on the screen because I really want you to get it. And I took some of his big words and turned them a little bit easier (laughs) to understand. But here's what he says. Not many years after ruling out the Beatitudes for real life, story I told you earlier, I sat under the brilliant stars in Vietnam. That night, that night, the significance of the Beatitudes overwhelmed me. I was a member of a cocky airborne infantry battalion. We were a well-trained, exceedingly efficient war machine. That day, we had battled. I had killed gleefully. I had ripped the life from other young men without a twinge of conscience. But I also had seen the bodies of my 19- and 20-year-old squad members ravaged by other young men who were hated enemies. If you'd asked us, we probably couldn't even tell you why we hated each other. That night, I experienced brokenness. That night, I became poor in spirit as I recognized the depths of my depravity. And I shuddered as I considered the possibility of my faith before God, if he exists. That night, I mourned the evil in me. And the evil that I saw emerge so quickly in all of us. For the first time in my young life, I understood that I was not the invincible captain of my ship. I could be killed at any moment. So from that very night, I began to realize that there was indeed a different way to live. I didn't think in these words that night, but meekness, righteousness, mercy... Purity and peacemaking all became so much more clearly preferable than the way that I had been pursuing significance and success. You actually can't set out to be poor in spirit or to mourn or to hunger for righteousness. This what I'm trying to This is a hard concept. This is received. Think about hungering for righteousness. How can you set out to be hungry for righteousness? What are you going to do? Stop eating? Stop eating righteousness so you get hungry. You can't. You can't actually set out to do that. You can't produce what Jesus describes here, it's received. It's received in moments like what Wilkins had in Vietnam. It's received in moments of brokenness before God. In that moment, he sensed his bankruptcy, his spiritual bankruptcy. He mourned what he saw was in his heart. And when you're in battle like that, everybody doesn't look pretty. You you look around, everybody seems to have their life together. Not when there's hate and murder And ripping people with bullets and bombs. He saw the evil. In that moment, he hungered for righteousness. He wanted a pure heart to replace his evil heart. You have to receive this. I have to receive this. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as circumstances you don't have to go off to war and kill someone and feel guilty about it. You have these moments, all of us have these moments. The the prodigal son had that moment. His was pretty extreme too, but it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be that way. It can be after a, a terrible terrible one more argument with your spouse. It can be when you think back to something that you said to your parents and it hits you for the first time the pain that you caused. It can be as a parent, some things that you've said to your kids. I mean, these moments come, and they have to be received. The brokenness, it has to be received. It comes, and you receive it. The question is, will we take those moments to receive it, to experience that brokenness? When we do, we begin a journey. (laughs) We begin a journey, hopefully, with Jesus type of journey and with his people that will develop us, change us, form us, transform us through the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in us into people who get it. So let's pray. Father, thank you. You are a good God and you are a happy God and you want to share your happiness with us, your joy. You want us to be people of rejoicing. Father, I pray that we would reflect that in our lives. Father, I pray that you would speak deep into the recesses of our hearts that are just pushing you away and seeking our own way and seeking stories and best lives that really aren't going to lead to the best life. Help us to see it. Bring that hunger in us. Thank you for walking with us through this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are moving into our time of response. And um, here's how we're going to continue our celebration. So we respond to God's word. and, And so what we do is we sing in our response. We have a kneeling bench back there if you just want to pull away. We have people from our Prayer team that'll be back there to pray with you personally. Uh, but we also have uh, a prayer station up here. It's a candle station. It's not about lighting the candle. It's about what happens as we light that candle. That candle reminds us, we are praying, and we pray as we light that candle, for the light of Christ to shine in the life. life of someone that we love, we know, who needs the light of Christ in their life. And then we celebrate the body of Christ broken for us the blood of Christ shed for us no one ever no one has lived the beatitudes except Jesus his righteousness is available to us that's what we celebrate he died for us we receive his righteousness the way we do it here at Five Oaks if you're a follower of Jesus we invite you to the table here or the table back there there's no particular order you come when you're ready during the first song, ideally, but you come when you're ready. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're not trying to exclude you. It just it doesn't make sense to participate in communion. We invite you to become a follower of Jesus, to put your faith in him, to receive his unmerited favor, which is what grace is. And you do that by faith. So let's continue our worship together.